Amen. Amen. Such a profound song and simple in its truth and yet so amazing. Let's take our Bibles and let's head to the book of Job. If you're unsure where that is, it's close to the book of Psalms and it's spelled J-O-B like Job. You head there. We're talking about this study and we're embarking upon it. We haven't done anything in this for years, but I wanted to embark upon the book. There's um, writings sometimes that people put, whether they be cartoons or other incidents of life and circumstances that sometimes are humorous. There's some stories that come a lot out of this one book. It's Paul Harvey's from a few years back, for what it's worth, where he tells a lot of true stories of different events that happen that, man, you read these stories and the twisted endings are kind of humorous. Here's one. It comes from Hershey PA out of a news article that he had gotten and wrote this article. It says, did you hear about what happened in Hershey PA where a woman in a Mercedes had been waiting patiently for a parking place to open up. The shopping mall was crowded. The woman in the Mercedes zigzagged between the rows of cars. Then up ahead she saw a man with a load of packages head for his car. She drove up and parked behind him and waited while he opened his trunk, loaded it with his grocery packages, and finally he got in his car and started to back out. But before the woman in the Mercedes could drive into the now empty parking space, a young man in a shiny Corvette zipped past and around her and he pulled into the empty spot and got out and started walking away. The woman was fuming. She rolled down her window and she said, hey, I've been waiting for that parking place. The young college age guy responded, sorry lady, that's how it is when you're young and quick. With that, she rolled up the window, put the Mercedes in gear, floored it and crashed into and crushed the right rear fender of the corner panel of his flashy new Corvette. The young man started jumping up and down and said, you can't do that. She rolled down the window and said, that's how it is when you're old and rich. <laughs> Joe Griffith wrote about a true story that happened down in, a, in Fort Worth Airlines. He wrote of the airline baggage handlers who retrieved an animal carrier in the luggage bay of the airliner. The dog was dead. The, the, the group there of the baggage handlers, they had visions of lawsuits dancing in their heads. They advised the woman passenger that her dog had been missent to another destination. They promised they would find it. They disposed of the dead dog. Meanwhile, they set out to search animal welfare agencies for an exact look-alike live dog. They found one. An airline baggage handler put the substitute dog in the animal carrier with the lady's name and address on it and delivered it to her front door. She took one look at it and said, that's not my dog. He said, how do you know? My dog is dead. I was bringing it home for burial. <laughs> <laughs> Raleigh, North Carolina. A state cop stopped an obviously drunk driver. While he was ticketing the man, there was a multi-car accident on the other side of the divided highway. The highway patrolman told the drunk, just wait here. The patrolman went across the highway to sort out the accident. After a while, the drunk figured he had waited long enough. He drove on home, told his wife that if anybody should come and ask that he's been in bed with the flu all day long. Within an hour... Two state patrolmen appeared at the home of the drunk driver and asked to see him. He came out of the bedroom wrapped in a robe, coughing and wheezing. The patrolman asked if he had been out driving that evening. He said, nope, I've been sick in bed all day. They apologized for bothering him. They asked if they could take a look at his car. The wrapped up drunk escorted them to the garage, opened it up, and there sat the high patrol car with the blue light still flashing. <laughs> Those are true stories that have a humorous ending. 
we want to start into a study on a true story that, though it seems almost too incredible to be true, it is. And it's not one that has what you and I would say necessarily happiness going all the way through. It's the book of Job. There are some of you that may be like many of those writers that talk about Job. They say, wait a minute, how do we know this book is real? How do we know that it's true? Some doubt it for a number of reasons. It's classified as poetic literature. Therefore, poetry isn't always real. It's symbolic and fanciful, some would say. The nature of the story, some will look and say it's just too implausible that somebody would have all the difficulties in one day that they lose everything. They lose all of their possessions. They lose all of their ten children in one singular day. That seems just too far-fetched. And then when you read the last chapter, everything is restored. All, twice as much of all the possessions. And again, a whole new family. It must be just legendary. It must not be real. It's fictional. There are some who would do a little bit more in-depth study and they'd say there's a number of Hebrew words that appear in Job that don't appear in other books of the Old Testament. That is true. There are some. And so they say, therefore, it must not be true. It must be made up. There's the absence of any reference to other Old Testament characters. There's never a mention of people like the Noahs or the Joel or, or like the Abrahams or like the Moses or the Daniels or the Ezekiels. And therefore, it must not be true. There's no other historical references to characters. In fact, in the story, Job does things that isn't typical Old Testament from Moses on, which is the bulk of the Old Testament. From Moses on, who made offerings? Who, what group of people were those who were supposed to make sacrifices? The Levites. Well, in the story of Job, we read in chapter 1 that Job, who we don't know is a Levite, he's never identified, he's making his own family sacrifices. Therefore, it's not consistent with some of the law, which is the bulk of the Old Testament, must not be true. And then there's the American concept that when you read the very first few words, you read, there was a man in the land of us. What comes to your mind? Oz. And therefore, it seems too fanciful and seems fictional. And some have discredited it for that one phrase that it sounds like we're talking about the land of Oz. And so some will just debate and they'll just discard the book altogether. Let me suggest something to you, some facts that you should consider if you're going to be, come to the book with a critical eye. Number one, it is probably the oldest book written in the Bible. It was probably written even before the time of Moses doing the writing of the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And so Job is probably penned way before any other Old Testament book is penned, which then helps us to understand why certain words were used earlier in that historical time period than later on. Our language, we change words as time goes by. And so, and we drop words. Therefore, that's not an outstanding or a problem. That also explains why it doesn't mention any of the other Old Testament characters like Abraham and Moses, they hadn't been born yet. It also helps us to understand why he is making sacrifices for his children because there is no Levitical system that comes years or generations later. Something else, Job is mentioned as a real character in other biblical literature. He is mentioned in Ezekiel 
and he's put in the same sentence as a Daniel and a Moses. And if those were real characters under Ezekiel's understanding, then so is Job. In the book of James, chapter 5, we read about the patience of Job. And so if they are not real, if he was not a real person, why would these other writers assume he was? Under the inspiration of Scripture and the Spirit of God moving in Scripture, it seems very clear that God understood Job was as real as Daniel and Moses, and he was a real character that's an example to us. When we talk about us, that some say, there, you know, how do we know there was a land of us and it's not Oz? Well, Uz is a grandson of Shem, great-grandson of Noah. And it was very typical in the Old Testament era. It's typical in our era that at times we name cities and towns after heroic figures. So to say the town of Uz couldn't be real because it's an odd-sounding situation name, well, that's a person who lived and could have founded it. In fact, it is mentioned in other scriptures where we read in Jeremiah that he talks about the city or the land of Uz and compares it as being in the region of, at, that, at his time, the land of Edom. So to say that nobody knew about us, that's not true either. That's just not considering the facts. And then when we look and say, well, poetry, it's poetry. How can you really trust poetry the same as you can trust historical literature? You know, they didn't write poetry. You have to understand Hebrew poetry. Don't, don't think about American, English poetry, where we might be using symbolism and allegories to an extreme extent. In Hebrew literature, when you say poetry, you're talking wisdom literature. And the wisdom literature is talking about some real truths of life, such as Proverbs and Psalms. And that doesn't mean it's not real. It just means it's written different, but it's giving real-life situations that's giving us real-life lessons. And in fact, it's going to deal with probably the most ancient of lessons, which makes perfect sense why you would have this long book talking about and trying to answer life's, one of life's most profound questions, why is there suffering? Because there's always been suffering ever since there's been people walking on planet Earth. And so it would make sense that you would have this lengthy discourse talking about why do we suffer? Why do we suffer? And so with that background information, we come and we start with the very beginning of the verse. And it starts off with a, with a way, and it's interesting how the first two chapters are divided. You have this phrase, and there was a man, and there was a day, and there was a day, and again there was another day. It seems like a, just a very natural way of looking at different scenes that take place. And the very first scene in this story and giving background is it's introducing us to Job. And it talks about there's this man, there's this guy who lived in the land of us. And it gives us some background information, and it tells us, before it gets into a story, what type of person he was. And it gives us some details into his life. It doesn't tell us about his parents. It doesn't tell us about his nationality. It doesn't tell us about any of his background. It just jumps in and says, here's what this man was like. Now, I, I want to explore these first few verses, but I don't want to take them right in order. For a simple reason, you'll see as I unfold it. But I want to describe what and point out this is what this man is like. Let me read it, and then let's highlight a few thoughts. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was perfect and upright, and one that feared God and eschewed evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 she-asses, and a very great household. So that this man was the greatest of all the men of the East. 
and his sons went and feasted in their houses, every one on his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Here's what I find from the man of Job. Before we get into all of the lessons and what he suffered, let's remember this. He's rich. He's rich. That's, that's important to this story. That doesn't mean that, okay, rich means you're right with God. But in this case, he was. He's a rich man, one of the wealthiest, one of the most influential people of that era of time and of that area of the world. A lot of people depended upon him. Whatever would happen to him, and that's part of this story, what happens to him, it has a trickle-down effect. He isn't a person who's living on an island. He's a man that many people depend upon, many people look up to, and with his suffering, a lot of other people suffer the fallout as well. So we take note that God said, okay, this, this guy, one of the characteristics of him, one of the traits is he's a rich man. One of the other characteristics that is in the very beginning of this whole text is he's reputable. He's a reputable, he has a tremendous reputation. It says he's one of the greatest men in that whole region of the world. That could be great in finances, but I think there's greatness in other ways. Jump with me all the way to chapter 29. In chapter 29, it's describing him as an individual. He's giving a, a, a conversation here. If you read the book and study it through, you'll see how it goes back and forth to different people talking. This is one of the times Job is talking and answering some of the attacks that his friends are making upon him. And he's describing, they're saying to him, the reason that you're having all this suffering is you've done bad, you've done bad, you've done bad, you're just a bad person. And he, in self-defense, is saying, well, really, but look at this. This is the way I lived. This is how I conducted myself. Jump down to chapter 29 in verse 7. When I went out to the gate through the city, when I prepared my seat in the street, understand that in Bible days, the town elders, the leaders, the officials, didn't go and work in the courthouse. They sat at the city gates. And so he's talking about, he's letting us know, like all the way up to the book of Judges. Here he is. He's a leader in the community. People looked up to him. People followed him. He was an influential guy. He had a reputation that he was, if we could throw it out this way, he was elected as one of the top people in the city, in the town, in that region because of his reputation. He's well respected. You read the whole section here. The young men saw me and they stepped back, hid themselves. is isn't the idea they were afraid of him. It's the idea if they were standing there and they were talking, when he came, they would give way to him. They, he, they would step out of the way for him. The young men saw me. They would step back. The age would rise up. They stood up in my presence. The princes would stop talking. They laid their hand upon their mouth. The whole idea here is that he was influential. They would listen to him. The nobles held their peace. Their tongue cleaved to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard me, then it blessed me. And when the eye saw me, it gave witness to me. People heard me. They listened to me. They looked to me. He's not bragging. He's stating a fact that he had a reputation in the community. In fact, he goes on and he says, part of the reason that I had a reputation, look at verse 12. I delivered the poor that cried and the fatherless and him that had none to help him. Do you remember in Bible days, the judges would be the ones that the poor people would come to, the widows would come to, and they would say, help me. Help me in my case. Help me to settle this dispute. Somebody is taking advantage of me. Somebody's not taking care of me. He's talking about him being a judge. 
him hearing cases, if you would. He's an individual that people would run to and seek help from. And so he goes on, when I delivered the poor, I delivered the poor, the fatherless, they cried, and him that had none to help him. I was there. The blessing of him that was ready to perish came upon me. I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. He goes on, he says, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My judgment was as a robe and a diadem. In other words, I didn't take bribes. In other words, when I judged, I was righteous and fair. I, didn't, I didn't, wasn't persuaded by people's looks or what they could offer me. He goes on, I was eyes to the blind, I was feet to the lame. I was father to the poor, and the cause which I knew not, I searched out. I, I operated with justice and fairness and, and understood. I broke the jaws of the wicked, and I plucked the spoil out of his teeth. So here he is describing himself. And he goes on and he says, And when I gave counsel, not only when I made decisions, but I gave counsel, I was sought after. In verse 21, he makes the comment, Unto me men gave ear and waited and kept silence until my counsel. And they waited for me as for the rain. They opened their mouth wide as for the latter rain. What I said was going to nourish them. It was going to help them. If I laughed on them, let, let's, let me rephrase that. If I smiled upon them. If I showed them kindness and, and pleasure in them, they, they, were, they were amazed. They were kind of caught off guard. They believed it not. And the light of my countenance, they did not cast them down. In other words, I was an encouragement. I was respected. In my counsel, and when I would say to somebody, listen, you're doing a great job, they, th- that really picked them up. That's the type of guy I was. You know, that people would look to me. They would seek me out. They would, they would want to get my encouragement. They benefited from them. And then he ends up this chapter, and he's describing in verse 25, I chose out of the way I sat chief and dwelt as a king in the army, as one that comforts the mourners. And so he's saying, I had a reputation. I was an influential person. Again, he's not bragging. He's stating a fact that this is what he used to enjoy. I, I was an individual who was upright, who was honest, who people sought after. I was a blessing to them. I wasn't a crook to them. I wasn't taking advantage. I had a reputation of being right and treating people well. And then he goes on. We describe him this way. He's righteous. Now, in the story in, jo- in, Genesis, uh, in Job 1, this is the first thing that's mentioned. I've made it the third. But that's because righteousness to God was more important than the wealth. Righteousness to God was, was the critical, the most important characteristic. He was righteous. The word is tam, tam in the Hebrew. It's the idea of being perfect. It's blameless before God and men. It has the idea of what's on the inside of a person. That it's, it's used of Abimelech. When Abimelech is tricked into taking Sarah into his harem, and all of a sudden there's the, puny, there's, there's, uh, the illness coming upon the people in his household, and God comes to him and says, you took somebody else's wife. And he says, I was innocent. I didn't know. The man Abraham told me a lie. The word innocent is what's used here. I, on the inside, I was right. I did what I thought was best. I was upright. I, I, I didn't try to do anything wrong. Jerubbabel uses this. When he's saying, will you be honest in promising me, if I protect you, that you will give me these rewards? And he uses the word when he's, the idea of being honest and, and hold your word. He's using the word tam. So it has the idea of somebody who is inside. They're not a hypocrite. They're not deceiving others. They're not saying one thing and doing another. They, they, Job today, if he came to church, would not have a secret life that nobody would know about. He'd be, 
he'd be inside, outside. He's righteous. In fact, the next phrase that's used of him is the idea of what's on the outside, what he's like on the outside. I'm going to use the word real. Where you read in the, in the original the, uh, or in the uh, English upright. The idea here is the idea that um, he's straight. He's, he's straight. He's level. And it's dealing with not the inside, but how you treat others. In other words, what he was on the inside, he was also on the outside. He was straight. He was real. He wasn't make-believe. He practiced what he preached. He, he wasn't one thing on Sunday and in front of a group, and then on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, have business. Totally different. That's not him. In fact, if you look at him in chapter 31 of the book. He's again, somebody else has attacked him. And they said, you know, you must have done something wrong to your employees. You must have treated others. Look at chapter 31. Look at how he describes how he conducted himself in relationships with people. Chapter 31. He starts with this phrase talking about how he treated his employees. It says, if I did, if if I did despise the cause of my manservant or maidservant when they contended with me, what then shall I do when God rises up and when he visits? What shall I answer him? Did not he that made me in the womb make him? That is, my maidservants, my manservants. Did not the one fashion us in the womb? In other words, I didn't mistreat my employees because I thought they were less than me. Weren't they made in the image of God too? Don't they deserve respect the way that they respected me? And so he's real. He's treating other people who worked for him, who were underneath him. Look what he talks about in verse 38 of that same chapter. He talks about how he did businesses. If my land cries against me, or the furrows, the farmlands, remember he had all these cattle, all this farmland, likewise there have complained. If I have eaten the fruits thereof without money, or have caused the owners thereof to lose their life, let thistles grow instead of wheat and cockle instead of barley. He's saying, I, I was honest with other people. They can't accuse me. He talks about his charity in the same chapter. Verse 16, If I withheld the poor from their desire, or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel myself and not been charitable, and the fatherless have not eaten together with me. He goes on, he says, For from my youth he was brought up with me, and as a father I have guided her from my mother's womb. If I have seen any perish for want of clothing, or any poor without covering, if his loins have not blessed me, and if he were not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have lifted up my hand against the fatherless when I saw my my help in the gate, then let my arm fall from my shoulder and my arm be broken from the bone. He's really sincere about this. He says, I was upright. In fact, even though I was a sought after individual, he says, I was very moral. Look at verse one. I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? I made a vow. I made a promise to my wife. And when it comes to looking at somebody else, there's no way it happened in my life. Jump down to verse 9 where he goes a little bit further with that. If mine heart had been deceived by a woman, or if I have laid wait at my neighbor's door for his wife or his daughter, then let my wife grind unto another and let others bow down upon her. For this is a heinous crime. Yea, it is iniquity to be punished by the judges. For it is a fire that consumes to destruction and would root out all mine increase. In other words, he was morally pure. In his mind, in his conduct, in his, in his physical, sexual relationships, this guy's outstanding. In all, he's not only reputable, he is real. What you see and what he says is the way he lived. Honest, upright. Let me take it a step further, okay? That here's a man who is also very reverent. It says in the text that he was perfect. 
he was upright. But then it goes on and it adds this phrase, and it's not here alone. It's mentioned a couple other times in this opening chapters. It says, one that feared God. The idea is that he recognized that God was in control. He was an individual who he knew he was under God. We, we say that when we do our pledge. One nation under God. Do we really believe that as a nation? Let's bring it home. Do you really believe you're under God as a family? In your home? In your job? That you're under God? Job did. Job believed this with all his might. He believed that it was, despite his power as being king-like, despite his ability to be very wealthy and very influential, he recognizes that that is not his most important goal. In fact, God recognizes this is how real he was. Before God talked about his greatness, his riches, his wealth, his reputation, God says, he's one that feared me. In fact, God says to Satan twice, have you considered my servant the one who was dedicated to me, that I was his goal, I was his, his, uh, his reality of life, that it wasn't about making money or making a name for himself first and foremost, it was about serving me. And so his spiritual character, this idea that he was right with God, he was real in his relationships with people, not a hypocrite, this idea that he feared God is mentioned several times. In fact, what I find very interesting is the people who attest to it, the people who say, this is Job. The first one who said this about him is God. God said, this is the man I'm describing. Could God say this about you? That you are righteous? That you are real? That you are reverent? This, this is a good guy. This is, a, this is one of the outstanding characters. But not only does God say this about him, his wife does too. Do you remember what his wife does in the middle of his trials? She says to him, look at verse 2, verse 9. Okay, they've lost their kids, they've lost everything. And his wife says, basically, do you still retain your integrity? Just curse God and die. I mean, she's hit her limits. But do you see what she said about him? Do you retain, and it's the same word for that idea of perfectness. Your uprightness in the Hebrew word. Do you still maintain your faith in God? Do you still want to be real? Do you still remain faithful to God? She's attesting. She's lived with him. She's gone through the ups and the downs with him in business and through raising the kids. And she says, you're a man of integrity. You're still going to maintain it? Not only does God say this about him, not only does his wife say this about him, but Satan does too. Satan admits when in the conversation, which we'll look at in depth tonight... In when Satan and, and God have their conversation, in verse 9, Satan accepts the idea that Job fears God. He says, do you think, do you think that Job fears you for, and he, then he's going to attack him. But he acknowledges Job fears God. Okay, think about this. This man is genuinely reverent. He is righteous. He is real. Those were the first and foremost qualities. Then God says he's reputable and he's rich. And so you think about this, for Job to have this combination, wealth and righteousness is really rare. Now that's not saying that wealth, wealth in itself is corrupting people. And if you have money, you're bad. It's not money that's bad, it's the love of money. It's the love of money. Okay, in that text where we talk about the love of money being the root of all evil, God has warned and said to people who are rich, 
Now watch how this unfolds in the New Testament. They that will be rich. This is their common characteristics. This is what usually happens to people who want to be rich. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare. And into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil. Which while some have coveted after, they have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. The point is that this is what normally happens to individuals. So, Paul, under the Spirit of God leading him, says, But you, man of God, flee these things. Charge them that are rich in this world. By the way, that's you and me. You and I don't think we're rich compared to one another. And compared to the president, you know, he's pretty rich. We're not rich by that comparison. But compared to the rest of the world, we're very rich. Most, most of the world does not have a house for their car. Okay? We do. We call them garages, but they're a house for the car. Most of the world doesn't have all of the things that we have. So this text really is directed to you and me, even though we don't think we're rich. But thou, O man, God, flee those things. Charge them that are rich in this world not to become high-minded, nor to trust in their riches, but in the living God, that they may do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to distribute, that they be charitable. Now that's the warning in the New Testament. Think about it, the statement, that this is the way that happens for most people, money consumes. Money and wealth and possessions, they take over, not Job. Job was very unique, he's unusual. There was other godly men like this in the Bible. Job is one of those cases that he did not fall into those foolish and hurtful lusts. That he was upright, that even though he got a lot of things and possessions, he retained his uprightness even as time went by. You know what strikes me even more? Is this thought. Is that he had this spiritual focus. He had this balance in his life. He had this reverence for God even when things were going good. What I mean by that is this. Most people turn to God when they face a crisis. Even many believers, many who worship, the time they get closest to the Lord is when all of a sudden tragedy strikes. Then all of a sudden, we really, really, really get serious. When all of a sudden, one of the kids gets really sick. When all of a sudden... The family is falling apart. When all of a sudden, we're about to lose a job, lose the house. When all of a sudden, your health is put on hold and everything is ready to collapse. When all of a sudden, you suffer death in your household. It's amazing how we become more serious about spiritual things when there's a crisis. Job was totally different. In Job's life, he is so serious about God even when there's no crises. Even before any loss, he can, he is, his wife can say, you're a man of uprightness. Satan says he's an upright man. God says he's an upright man. He's an outstanding individual. All, all of his, his description comes before he faces difficulty. If somebody wrote your biography today, would they start with spiritual characteristics like God did with Job? Would they be able to say this and your family sit there and say, Amen, reverent, upright, 
real. What you saw at church is what we got at home. Is that true? That's the type of person Job is. I think, I think God is writing all this because he wants us to know that Job didn't deserve, because he did bad, what's going to happen. It's not punishment. Well, that, that's for the further on conversation. Let me give you something else about him. He's resistant. He's resistant. The text says he eschewed evil. That's old King James English. It's kind of a cool word. It simply means he shunned evil. He shunned it. He got away from it. He didn't damper and tarry and get as close as he could. Despite all of his prestige, all of his popularity, despite all the attention other people gave him, just think about it. He probably, as a celebrity, had people throwing themselves at him. Maybe he could have had some ladies throw themselves at him. He eschewed evil. He stayed far away from it. He's an individual that maybe some came and they said, you know, rule in our favor. Help me out and I'll give you a little bit of a bribe. Stayed far away from it. He's an individual that he did not get involved with the appearance of evil. He was an individual that he wouldn't say, well, what's right with this or what's, or what's wrong with this? He would say, what's right with this? He's an individual that to him, to him, dabbling in dishonesty, dabbling in cheating, dabbling in being corrupt in any way, shape, or form, lying about somebody, being vindictive, it was like an individual who has an allergy to bees, they'll stay away from the bees. Individuals who have a nut allergy, some here do, stay far away from it. They don't want to get and say, well, let me just roll it around in my hand and I'll just see if I can smell the peanut. No, they stay far away from it because it's dangerous. That's the way Job operated. He's an individual who was resistant. He didn't play with evil. He stayed away from it. Let me put something else about it. This, to me, is probably the most convicting and challenging of all the characteristics of this man. I don't know what other word to use, so I'm just throwing it out to keep an alliteration here. He's a revivalist. Some might say he's a reformer. What I mean by that is, how did he deal with his family? How did he operate with his family? He wanted them to have perpetual revival, to be right with the Lord. How do I know that? It says he, says, it says he has seven sons, three daughters. At the time of the story opening up, there was this man. These kids are growing. They're out of the house. How do I know what the text says? The text says that they are feasting in their own houses. They are hosting their own times together. That they would invite one another. It says on his day. Is that they got together on each and everyone's birthday? We don't know. We don't know what it means by on his day. But it could be that when they got together for a birthday, so they have, you know, they have, there's 10 kids, they got a lot of birthday parties to go to. The family's getting together on a regular basis. They, they're inviting to their homes others, and so they're on their own. They're adult kids. We don't know if there's grandkids. We don't know anything about that, but we know that they're adult kids at this point. And they're hosting these parties. The text says Job sits back and he hears about his kids getting together. And as his kids are getting together, he's thinking to himself, Maybe they've offended the Lord. So I'm going to offer a sacrifice for them. I'm going to be praying for them. I'm going to be holding them up before God that they would remain pure and upright. Interesting. Interesting that he would do this. And it says he did this continually, if you look at the verse. He did this on a regular basis. 
When it comes to his kids, he's a revivalist. He is really concerned. What this teaches me about Job is this thought, is that Job, as a parent, as a businessman, as a successful businessman, successful parent, that he's raised them up to the point that they have their own homes, that they're able to manage for themselves, it shows me his spiritual values. What I mean by that is this, is that Job cared mostly not about their homes, not about their chariots. It doesn't say that he was focused more on how much money they could make or what job or career that they had. His most important concern about his kids was their relationship with God. What was their condition? How right were they with God? It teaches me that Job valued prayer, valued time in prayer, that he would take the time with all of his busyness and other obligations to say, I am on a regular, repeated basis going to take time to pray for my kids. He valued prayer. He valued their souls. His kids' spiritual welfare was what's really important to him. So he does what he could to help them out. He prays at this, at this time in their life. Okay? He's praying for them. And he's more concerned, let me add this, he is more concerned about their walk with the Lord than if they did wrong, they hurt my reputation. He didn't care about the Burgraff name. What would people think? He cared about what my kids would do in their relationship with God. Not how other people viewed it, how did God view it. In fact, he says, look at the text. He says, maybe, watch, watch how he's so, so specific. It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God where? Where? In their hearts. He is concerned about their attitude towards spiritual things. About their personal walk with the Lord. His spiritual values. Can I add to that something else? His discernment. As, as a businessman, as a parent, look how discerning he is. Look how wise this man is. He knew, because of the sin nature in his kids, that they could possibly do wrong. He wasn't a blind parent. He wasn't one who said, my kids would never do something like that. My kids are always good. My kids never. Now, some of you have kids that are always good. God bless you. We, the rest of us, envy you. But the reality is, any one of our kids could do anything because of their sin nature. That's a reality. Job was smart enough to accept it. To say, my kids might have a problem with the Lord. My kids may have offended God. And so I'm concerned. I'm not going to be a blind parent. I'm not going to turn a blind eye to what they did and just ignore it. Do you remember others in the Old Testament? Do you remember Eli with his sons? It was brought to his attention, and he still turned a blind eye and ear to the evil they had done. That's the way some parents can get. And Job was smart enough to say, hey, wait a minute. I need to be concerned about my kids and their heart and their walk with the Lord. He doesn't deny that they have spiritual battles. He's discerning enough to say, here's what I can do. I can pray. I can pray for mercy and grace to be put upon their life, for God to work in their life. Spiritually discerning. Spiritual values. Can I give you a third thing about this man in that regard? He is a spiritual leader. 
None of you are going to be able to cast a stone at this page and say, well, Job was a wimp. Uh Uh-uh. This is a man of God who is truly a man of God. Not just... In a, in a sermon or a story, but in real life. His wife admits it, Satan admits it, and God commends him for it. He's a leader that in his family, it was well known, spiritual welfare comes first. I am most concerned about the spiritual welfare of my kids. That's Job. Not their college degree, not their checkbook, not their pension programs, not, the, not all the, the stuff that would impress people. How are they between them and God? That's leadership. Leadership that says, I will personally do what I can to help involve, to, to do something about this. His personal, repeatedly, at this point of the life, he prayed. Some of you are in a different point of life than Job. Some of you are back where you are still the fathers train up your children to rear them. Are you a type of spiritual leader that you are doing it? Or are you you saying, well, I'll become a Job later on when the kids are out of the house. If you're not willing to be a spiritual leader when they're in the house, you will not be the spiritual leader when they're out of the house. This man... When he is at that phase in his life where his kids are out, he is praying for them on a regular basis. When they're out of the house, are you praying for your kids? Men, are you praying for your kids on a regular basis while they're in the house? Or is your business your most important part of your life? Is, there, is your career, is your house your most important part of your life? Not with Job. Job is one who's a revivalist. Spiritual values, spiritual discipline and discernment, spiritual leadership. Is that you? should be. It should be. He's the type of dad who is a godly example. Even his closest members could say this is what he is. He was like this. It was real. And he didn't wait. I remind you. He didn't wait until things got bad to be praying for his kids. He doesn't even know. He says, maybe they have gone, they have hurt the Lord. Maybe they offended. He doesn't know. But he's praying. He's praying when things are going good. Is that you? Something else that strikes me about this man. He's resilient. He's resilient. What it is in this text, it talks about how he, as an individual, and we already read about this, you know, just moments ago when his wife says to him, she said, do you still retain your integrity, curse God and die? That is where we're going to get to some of the story tonight and then next Sunday, where all of a sudden things go strangely awry for him and he doesn't know why. That's the gist of the book. But in the midst of all those struggles, here's what he does. When his wife says, why don't you curse God and die? He says, you speak as one of the foolish women in verse 9 and 10 of chapter 2. What shall we not receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not also receive evil? In all of this, he did not sin. He did not sin. He's resilient. The trials, the troubles, the tragedies that struck his life. He is an individual who remains steadfast in the middle of the worst sufferings. Folk... I'm going to go out on a, on a limb here, and I don't think it's that far of a limb. None of us have suffered the things this guy suffered. Some of you have had tragedy, loss. Some of you did lose children. He lost 10 in one day. Doesn't minimize, I don't mean to minimize years. He is the epitome of tragedy. And then you look, and people looked at him, and it talks in the book about how they were disgusted 
by his physical appearance because of all the sores and the, all the pus and you know, all the other things that come out. It's just, yick! This guy had a bad day. It was horrible. And yet it says in all this, he, he doesn't sin. He's resilient. He's resilient. Why? How is it that this guy could stay and maintain steadfastness? And so many run to the book of Job and say, oh, it's going to teach me about suffering. It's going to teach me about Job. And we spent our time talking about Job because it's appropriate starting the book. But you miss the real point of the story. The real point of the story is God. The bulk of this book is all about God. It gives us the background information. It tells us about Job and his sufferings. But from there on, we hear about God. In fact, the entire series of conversations... The 34, 35 chapters that are all about conversations, they talk about God. What about God? His friends give their ideas, he gives his rebuttals, they go back and forth, they talk about God. The last four chapters of the book is God talking. It's the longest recorded section of scripture where God is recorded giving a personal conversation to people. This book is telling us about God. It's telling us about how God deals with people. Job happens to be the people, that's the subject of the story. And so the lesson has to be, what do we learn from this very beginning few comments? What do we learn about God? We've learned about Job. He's rich. He's this. He's this. He's this. But what does that teach us about God? What does that tell us about God? Well, in order to, to, for Job to live godly and for us to understand anything about God, it, it tells us a lot about God. In describing Job, in giving us details about us, about it, it tells us something phenomenal about God that Job knew. And that one thing, phenomenal thing that Job knew carried him through the trials. This one thing that he knew about God is this. God sees me. God sees me all the time. We know that God saw Job all the time because God could describe him. God could describe his character, his reactions. God could tell us details about his heart. God could tell us about his business dealings. God could tell us how he treated other people. God saw his relationship with his kids. God said this was the way he was continually. We learn a lot about him. And in the second time, God boasts about him again and says, have you considered my servant Job? Job is an illustration of God seeing people in all areas of their life. And that's what held Job to a straight line. That's why he was real on worship day as on business day. Because he'd stop, he could think, God sees me. And by the way, he mentions this throughout the book. God sees me. God sees me. God sees me. God knows what I'm going through. God, God, God sees me. If there's one thought you walk away today, write it down. Mark it on a pen. Mark it on your Bible. Put it on your phone. Put it on the fridge this afternoon when you get home. Put this thought down. God sees me. God sees me and all that I'm doing and all that I'm saying. In the midst of millions of people upon this earth, God sees me. In the midst of all that's going on, hour by hour, it's not like God took a look at me and then God walked away and got busy with the billions of others. No. Think this through. Every time throughout the week, put a reminder, have your phone ring every, every two hours to remind you, God sees me. God sees me. You know, can we, can we make it blunt? God saw how you worshiped already in this last, you know, five minutes we've been here. God has seen the way you sang to him. 
God saw how you responded. God sees the computer sites you go to. God sees and hears the words you say coming to and from church. God sees everything. He knows what you're putting on Facebook. He sees it. He sees what you're saying behind somebody's back. God sees how you respond to your kids. God sees how you treat your spouse. God sees what you do when it comes to your finances and your business. God sees how you treat your employers and your colleagues. God sees in the lunchroom what you say and what, you, what, what jokes you tell. God sees. God sees exactly how you respond. God sees what you're going to do this evening when it's worship time. God sees when, when your Bible sits there and collects dust. God sees. God sees us all the time. He knows what we're doing. He knows what, what we think is of value. God sees. Are we therefore real? Are we resilient? Are we therefore righteous? If you remind yourself, I, I, I would think this would make a profound impact on our life throughout this week. That God is watching me. God is seeing what I'm doing, what I'm saying. So with that in mind, God sees me, then you and I have to admit, he knows what's in our heart right now. He knows exactly what's really in our heart. With that in mind, he knows if we're right with other people right now. He knows how we've treated people this week. He knows if we're holding an animosity. God sees. He knows, he knows what you are like when nobody else here sees you. He knows your secrets. He sees. He knows if you're right with him right now. God sees me all the time. Every moment. What's he see in your heart right now? What does he see? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed.